Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As my Auntie Queen used to say, she used to go, Philip, the moment your sperm meets your egg, you join the queue for death. Uh, she was actually quite cheerful and she was basically saying we're all in the queue for death you can shuffle yourself around by eating your greens wearing a seat belt having your vaccination open the window uh, and humor is the best way of dealing with your impending death welcome to the humorology podcast with me paul barros and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business sport and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is an NHS doctor, broadcaster and comedian who knows that laughter is the best medicine. When he's not practising general medicine or working with the NHS, he spends his time tickling the country's funny bone. A joyous jack of all trades, he has spent time as a doctor, a writer, an investigative journalist, a TV presenter, a comic, a philanthropist, a speaker and a broadcaster, to name but a few. His show, Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, aired for five series and solidified him as one of the country's favourite TV doctors. His stage shows leave audiences in stitches. Insert own gag here. While diagnosing the disasters of healthcare, politics and life. When it comes to the issues of the NHS, personal healthcare or health-related politics, he has a social prescription for helping humanity heal through humour. Dr Phil Hammond, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for that very lovely introduction. Wasn't that nice? Thank you. Well, it was all true and it was all from the heart. You, you well, have. Uh... I was going to say, tell that to the General Medical Council. I, I hope you're recording it for their benefit too. <laughs> Positives <laughs> first. <laughs> Well, yeah, let's let's start with the positives. And the, one of the positives is you've done a lot of training of doctors and medical students uh, to communicate better with patients. Do you think that you can be a really good communicator without understanding humour? No, I don't think you can, because humour is... I mean, human beings are essentially social animals. We're like leaves on a tree and we want to belong. Uh, and the best humour unites us. I mean, you can humour can be very divisive. You can deliberately go out to upset and divide a room uh, or a patient and their relatives, but the best humour unites people, and we very much need that, particularly at the moment. So um, the, the best communicating doctors I know have had very warm, compassionate senses of humour, um, but I've seen doctors who have no sense of humour at all but happen to be brilliant brain surgeons uh, and rely on their junior staff or the nurses to do the difficult communication for them. So... Uh, there are lots of different skill sets you need to be a successful doctor, but in terms of the, the important stuff, I mean, uh, you know, most of health, interestingly, is built on relationships. If you look at what keeps people healthy over a lifetime, yes, there's luck, there's genetics, uh, there's access to vaccines, etc. But actually, the healthiest people have strong relationships over the course of their lifetime that are built on love, compassion and humour. So I think if you have those threes, you're pretty well set up for life. Well, that's really interesting because, as you know, I, I used to train uh, doctors in communication as well. And one of the things uh, we noticed was there were nurses 
at a big London teaching hospital who would get their patients better or out of the door, if you like, much quicker because they would do things like chide them and gently tease and, and play and, as, as we call in psychology, future pace them into health. Hmm. Uh, do you think that's something that all medical people and should have? Yeah, there is a role for what we call humorous nudging. I mean, it's very hard to predict human behavior as we're finding in this pandemic. We don't know how the virus will behave, but we don't know how humans will behave. And so humorously nudging them into a better mindset can work, but it also depends on the context of the situation. What's interesting is that doctors and nurses at the moment work under very stressful conditions, and it's quite hard to find humor when you're very stressed. As you said, I, I used to teach uh, medical students and doctors how to communicate under pressure, and it's a different context. When you're in a classroom uh, with an actor, you know, learning how to break bad news or how to manage an angry patient or explain a difficult diagnosis. It's a world away from being in the pressure of an NHS situation where you haven't slept for 18 hours and you haven't eaten and loads of people are shouting at you. And we had a wonderful female student who was brilliant. She was a funny, compassionate communicator in the classroom. And she did her first job in an emergency department with people screaming at her. Uh, and this person kept going on at her ear. Can you guarantee me that my treatment will work? Can you guarantee and she cracked and she said very simply, if you want a guarantee, buy a toaster, which was a lovely line, but got her her first complaint. But actually it's one I use now gently with humor is that you know there are no certainties in medicine. It is about dealing with uncertainty. And one of the way to take the fear and the edge off that uncertainty is to use humor. Well, it's really interesting because some of that will be about the delivery, won't it? Yes. Of, of how you deliver it, because you can put one line in somebody's mouth and if they are really stressed yes. and they blurt out, if you want a guarantee, get yourself a toaster, you yes. know, is a difference from, yes. I, I'd imagine when you deliver it, it's, it's done with a little bit yeah. more gentleness and tact. Yes, it is interesting. I mean, the medium is the message and the way that you deliver a gag matters. Uh, I cheat. I, I tend to laugh jokes in. I remember talking to Aid Edmondson about this when I was working with him, and he says, oh, you're cheating. If you're laughing a gag in, you're letting people know that you think it's funny as well, and you're giving them permission to laugh, but you don't quite have the element of surprise. Some of the best jokes are like a knight's move in chess, where you don't see them coming at all. But if you start laughing a go joke in, you're saying, I'm just about to say something funny, prepare yourself. Um, but I tend to do that in that context. I let people know that I'm trying to be funny. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work occasionally. <laughs> I had a very doer Scottish man who told me that the concentration room was no, no place for a joke. But in most cases, even towards the end of life, I think you can use humour uh, to help ease people's passage. Well, no, I, absolutely. And there was a gag in there somewhere as well. Well, there was. Actually, this is a true story. I've just been doing a, a series for Radio 4 where I've been popping around interviewing NHS staff, patients and carers and volunteers uh, yes, during the pandemic, so it's quite difficult to manage and some of the interviews are in masks or outdoors. And then I do like a comedy show for the hospital at the end of it. And it's uh, going out, I think, it's something like August the 28th, it starts on Radio 4. But I spoke to this wonderful chaplain talking about using humour towards the end of life. And she was in Birmingham. She reminded me a bit of Julie Walters. She had a tremendous sense of humour. And she said this woman, poor woman who had cancer, who was dying and wasting away, as you often do with cancer, but she had breast implants. And the thinner she got with her cancer, the larger the breast implants got and slightly uncomfortable. And she knew this woman really well and she'd been around to see her. And just as she was close to death, she leant forward and said in her ear, would you like me to pop those before you go to sleep? And they both roared with laughter. Now that could have gone either way and you needed to know someone, but imagine you're a hospital chaplain, somebody's on the verge of death with cancer and breast implants and you lean forward and gently say, would you like me to pop them before you go to sleep? That's comedy and you need to be able to judge the mood of the situation and the context very finely or it can backfire on you. But I thought, what a brave gag that was. What, what a brave gag. But, but ultimately, that's about uh, have you got enough rapport yes. with the patient in order to know well, this will probably yes. fly? Yes, I mean, that's the difference in a, you know, in a comedy room. You may have people who come back to see you because they've seen you loads of times before, but essentially... A, and after dinner speech or some comedy, it's a completely new audience. So you have to tread a bit more carefully. So yeah, you have to judge the mood of the room uh, slightly more delicately than if you've built up a rapport with someone over the years or over the months. So how important is it for anyone, especially in the medical profession, to be able to laugh at themselves? 
I think that's important. It shows a level of insight, isn't it? That you're 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 uh, critical of your behaviour and you're pre prepared for it to be scrutinised. I mean, in essence, what comedy is is scrutiny. It's scrutiny with a punchline. But where medicine has gone wrong in the past is it's been very secretive. So, you know, doctors were all powerful. We created this ridiculous language that nobody else can understand. Uh, we weren't yeah. particularly scrutinised. So if you made a mistake in the past, you generally got away with it. Uh, and we're moving towards an era of transparency. It's actually probably been the death knell of some of the blacker medical humours. So when I trained, even written in the notes, you would write things like patho on patients. If a patient was patho, it was pissed and fell over. Paggot, pissed and got pumped. <laughs> Paddy, pissed and denies everything. If patients were pumpkin positive, that means that we shined a pen torch in their mouth and their whole head lit up. Um, we used to write, you know, if people were NFB, normal for Bridgewater, or NFN, normal for Norfolk. I mean, you know, acronyms like TF Bundy, totally fucked, but unfortunately not dead yet. JP Frog, just plain fucking run out of gas. I mean, we, you know, we used to use these uh, acronyms and occasionally write them in the notes. That's all gone now because it's not so funny when it's read out in court. So people still have the humour uh, against themselves and against their situation. But I think it's been driven into the, you know, the privacy of the sluice room uh, rather than publicly paraded. And that was something I really learned from my uh, Radio 4 series is that people would talk about the old days when you played pranks on people. Uh, there was a nurse that said that on the first day there was this little male student nurse and we told him that he had to go to casualty and pick up the most toxic drug in the world uh, and he'd have to wear two pairs of gloves but the drug would burn through his gloves if he didn't get back to the ward in 30 seconds and he'd need to be double gloved and he goes down there and they put a little tablet of paracetamol in his hand and of course it takes two minutes to get back from the ward and this little boy's screaming that the, the drug is burning through. And we used to, you know, put KY jelly on the telephone and cling film over the toilet and et cetera. None of that happens anymore because people are worried that it'll be misconstrued as bullying. So I think medicine has probably become kinder and less funny as a result. I mean, that was part of the, the fun of it. Um, and surely one of the things that people need for resilience is, yeah. is to have fun. So doctors, especially at this time, who've been through, well, you know, just hellish times, surely that is a release, isn't it, that, that should be yeah. there for them? Yeah, I think it is. And they still do. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because there were lots of videos of people on intensive care units who've worn this awful PPE that cut into their skin and they can hardly breathe or whatever. And they do a little dance routine. And social media was divided as to whether this was appropriate during a pandemic, that people on ITU should be dancing and laughing and having a bit of laugh, or whether they should be all deadly serious. And it's, it's you know, we're so judgmental now. Um, in, in my hospital, they sent the Marines in to help on intensive care, partly because so many people coming in with COVID were overweight and they needed help proning people, turning them from front to back. So they yes. sent the Marines in. And the sister on intensive care said, we thought they were gonna send all the old has-beens in who were coming up to retirement, but because COVID is riskier, the older you are, they sent in the youngsters who were rippling with muscle. Uh, and uh, the nurse said, by mistake, by mistake, we made them change in the corridor and gave them really small outfits to put on so their muscles would be bulging out. And she said, even though it was a really serious situation, it really lifted the spirit. So I think there are clever ways of still using humor uh, in a very difficult situation. Um, but uh, yeah, black, the really black humour is, is kept quite secret now. I think it still happens if you work in the police force, in the ambulance service, you know, you see dreadful things and sometimes you have to deal with it through black humour. But I, don't, I think you can be compassionate and have a black sense of humour. I think the two can go hand in hand. And it's important to recognise that, that some situations will make you cry and some might make you laugh. And your emotional response in a stressful situation is often hard to judge. Well, we had um, John Sweeney on, who's the panorama, uh, ex-panorama, and he, he does hunting Ghislaine and the thing, but he's mm. been in 60 war zones and insurrections mm. around the world. And he talks about black humour uh, being part of your shield, yes. part of your protective shield uh, 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 from the thing. And surely doctors need that protective shield as well. Comedy can sometimes be lies for laughs, but the best jokes have an element of truth. As Miles Kington used to say to me, you start with a grain of truth and then you develop your pearl. You can add different layers to it to exaggerate it, but there's a grain of truth. And the danger with the black humor in medicine is that it prevents you from taking action when something awful is happening. So when I was a junior doctor, there was always a surgeon in the hospital called Chopper Charlton or Killer Keen or Butcher Bates, or there was one up north known as the Terminator. 
And you would laugh about it. It'd be in the Christmas show. We'd sing a song about, you know, Killer Keen or Chopper Charlton. But you wouldn't actually do anything about it. Your way of dealing with it. Here's a chap who's given his life and his liver to the NHS. And in his mid-50s, he's probably a bit jaundiced. He's falling over in the potting shed. But because he wants to maximise his pension, he's hanging on there until he's 60, 65, when I wouldn't let my dog near him, let alone my relatives. And yet people are too frightened to blow the whistle. So what do they do? They transpose those difficult emotions into satire. They call him Killer Keen and then sort of avoid him unless they need his reference. And that, in essence, was the heart of my switching from comedy to serious investigative journalism is that my local heart surgery unit, uh, uh, including paediatric heart surgery in Bristol when I was still doing comedy with Struck Off and Die, uh, was nicknamed by the junior doctors the Killing Fields and the Departure Lounge. Now, you don't get much blacker than that. And I, Tony and I went up to the Edinburgh Fringe and we said our local heart surgery units known as the Killing Fields and the Departure Lounge and people roared with laughter. In fact, it was made into a BBC CD that you can still buy. Uh, and then I, I met Ian Hislop in the toilet at a BBC Light Entertainment Christmas party. I followed him in uh, and I said to him, can I have a column in private eye? And he said, do you mind not standing so close to me? Um, but we had a chat and he gave me this job as Private Eye's medical correspondent. He had this idea that what Private Eye needed was more expert journalists. Uh, he said, you can't write under your own name because you'll be drummed out of your profession. We've had this issue before. Jonathan Miller had a few issues when he was writing for Private Eye. So I'm going to give you the pseudonym MD. And because I knew that there was this problem in my local heart surgery unit, that was one of the first stories I broke um, in 1992 took seven years to have a public inquiry. The Bristol Heart Inquiry was then the largest public inquiry in British history. Uh, and I was called to give evidence. Uh, so I'd sort of reinvented myself as a serious investigative journalist, but I take the stand and this shit hot barrister led forward and said, Dr. Hammond, when you refer to the Bristol unit as the killing fields and the departure lounge, that's medical humor, is it? And this is at a public inquiry with parents of bereaved parents and, and doctors and, you know, and it made me think, gosh, you know, I've always done comedy about stuff that matters, you know, healthcare matters, competence matters when you're choosing a heart surgeon. Uh, but it sort of came back to bite me on the ass because I'd made jokes out of this. I mean, yes, I'd done the right thing and blown the whistle and raised concerns, etc. Uh, but it made me realize that sometimes the use of black humor in medicine can actually be detrimental to proper action. You, you as I say, you displace your emotions uh, into satire and then sort of move on and don't act to stop it. Uh, and that's yeah. sort of been the history of NHS scandals. There'll be black humour around Mid-Staffordshire and black humour around all the big, and probably black humour around the pandemic, I would think. In one sense, it's useful because it pricks that bubble of pomposity, yeah. doesn't it? And then gets attention for it and people start talking about it. So it's a way in um, to, to dealing with it. Um, yes, I think actually in your culture, in your organisation, your business, if you hear a rumour about something through humour, I mean, yes, you have to establish the facts and yes, you have to properly investigate. But, uh, you know, rumours often surface in comedy and sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not, but it's a useful indicator. I always used to say to people, because you couldn't find any performance data on your local surgeon. So when you went for your hernia operation or your hip operation, you, you didn't know how many they'd done or what their results were like or where they compared to the national average. So I used to tell people jokingly, just sneak in the back of the hospital show. In the days when there were always hospital shows, you'll find out who Killer Keen or Chopper Charlton is in that hospital and just avoid him. Uh, or you follow the doctor into the canteen and see how they use a knife and fork. If you have a surgeon who struggles to get the salad out of the saddle bar <laughs> or a dentist with bad breath, they're probably best avoided. <laughs> yes. Well, I loved your Radio 4 series, Bedside Manor. Um, do you think Bedside Manor is a dying art or, or, or is it just different now? I think it needs to be reinvigorated. I mean, the art of conversation, in essence, what medical interaction in is, is a series of difficult conversations usually. And most of mine now are coming via Zoom or video. Um, I work in pediatric chronic fatigue. So I'm seeing young people with post-viral fatigue, some with long COVID, but we made the decision not to get let them go into hospital where there might be a risk they'll pick up uh, another virus. Um, so we do it all via video. And so there's certain, obviously lots of cues that you pick up when you're face to face with someone that you don't necessarily get and in general practice, a lot of the consultations have been done on video and they're less satisfying. You don't, you know, compassion is key in healthcare and that just the gentle laying of a hand on somebody's shoulder or their arm can make a huge difference. And you can't do that uh, via a, a video link. 
Um, but the bedside manner is still important. People remember kindness. If you've ever had bad news, you remember how it was broken to you. If it was done kindly, you never forget. If it was done harshly, you never forgive. Uh, and those moments really, really matter. Uh, and often it's the little things uh, in medicine that really make a difference, that little look of kindness. Uh, and there's a huge well of compassion in the NHS. Sort of I've noticed, I, well, on my radio show, I interviewed a domestic called Haley. Um, he was being paid tuppence halfpenny, uh, but she was working on intensive care. She refused to let anybody die alone. So she would just sit in there with the full PPE, even when she wasn't paid or on a shift to do so, hold their hand and talk to them. Uh, and that's, you get so many people like that in the NHS who have such, you know, and she would laugh as well. So she'd tell that story and then she'd tell me a funny story and then she'd tell me a, a tragic story. And that's the interesting thing about the NHS is that tragedy and comedy are two sides of the same coin. And in the same day, you can have three good laughs and three good cries. And that's the nature of your work. So what makes you laugh, Phil? Uh, gosh, well, all sorts of things make me I laugh a lot in consultations and patients do make me laugh in the best possible way uh if you're thinking about standard comedians that i've seen over the years it's seeing some of the first time so i went to edinburgh 1990 and i can remember seeing people like eddie izzard for the first time sean hughes for the first time bill hicks for the first time russ noble uh, for the first time and that's the really exciting thing when you see someone who just takes you on a complete flight of fancy with all those knights moves that you aren't expecting it's like climbing inside a very clever brain. Uh, and then when you see him a second or third time, you can see, well, okay, even the ones who are claiming to be improvisers and winging it, you can start to see a structure and you can't analyze how they do and you start thinking it through. The funniest comedy gig I ever went to was at the Edinburgh Fringe and it was a Canadian trio called Corky and the Juice Pigs. And again, the first time I'd see them, the Gilded Balloon Main Theater, they sang a song called I'm the Only Gay Eskimo that brought the house down. Me and Nuck Fluck Chuck Buck, we both like blubber, but me, I've got a crazy fetish for rubber. I'm the only gay Eskimo. Uh, yeah. Phil, Greg and Sean. Yes. And, uh, in terms of enjoying something, so you could dance, you could laugh. So I really like clever musical comedians too. Um, but yeah, the up and coming around, somebody like Kevin Bridges, I like all, all that spirit of Billy Connolly, uh, people who had, uh, they can do a range of accents and they can act in a sense. You can see some comedians who make great actors and you see they have that sense of timing. They can do accents. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm fairly easily amused. <laughs> well, well, not that easily amused because I, uh, whether you know it or not, I had two musical acts, Morris Mine and the Majors and the Calypso Twins, and I didn't. We didn't get a mention in any of your favourites, so I'm cutting Ooh. all that bit out. Oh, I and, do apologise. To redub Morris Minor and the Majors and the Calypso. Yeah, Morris Minor and the Majors, one of my all-time favourites. Very, very funny. <laughs> very clever. <laughs> And you'll be singing some of our hits, won't you? Yeah, yeah. And yes, of course I will. And of course, the other thing, the old timers. So the great thing about private eye parties in the old days, you would meet. I met Peter Cook on the piano, uh, Willie Rushton, unbelievably funny. Um, and I was sort of mentored by Miles Kington. So Miles's wife, Caroline, uh, directed the early shows of Struck Off and Die Up at Edinburgh. And Miles just used to come up with these lines that always, the one that I loved was, uh, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put one in a fruit salad. Um, and I heard Brian O'Driscoll, the British Lions rugby captain, say yes. that at a press conference. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really interesting. So, so Miles Kington has translated to uh, rugby union. That's a great what, one, isn't it? What was Miles's? Uh, he had a. Uh, uh, a he was in Instant act. Sunshine. So Instant he was, Sunshine, that's why. So I, was I knew to them because they were St. Thomas's doctors. So I trained at St. Thomas's and we used to do the Christmas show that always had an appalling title like Back Passage to India or Beverly Hills Flop <laughs> on Her Majesty's Secret Cervix, Brown Finger, Desperately Leaking Lumen. I mean, you could go on. So we would do these awful shows. And then on the old boys night, Instant Sunshine would come back and Miles was the one who wasn't a doctor. And there were three doctors. There was Alan Marion Davis in public health and Peter Christie, who was a pediatrician and David Barlow, who was a venereologist. And Miles told this wonderful story of they were flying to New York and somebody got sick on the plane with stomach ache. And they said, is there a doctor on the plane? And of course the three Instant Sunshine doctors tried to hide and Miles said, these three are doctors. And they went up and of course, you know, the pediatrician said it was whatever, appendicitis. And the public health doctor said it was uh, dysentery and the sexual health doctor said it was syphilis or something. And it just showed you that if you take your symptoms to three different doctors, you'll often get three different diagnoses depending on their specialty. So that's well, another great story he used to tell. 
do you think potentially everyone has the ability to be funny or is it a, a gift given to the few? Well, funny is in the eye of the beholder or the listener, isn't it? So some people are unintentionally funny um, when they're not meaning to. So I think everybody has provoked laughter because it's such an intrinsic human trait, but clearly not everyone can earn a living uh, out of humour. So yes, you can be funny. Uh, the secret is often to be unexpected, but not so unexpected that people don't understand what you're talking about. I can remember seeing Harry Hill for the first time before he was huge and Harry was really surreal. And he'd yeah. say, what's one of these? It's an upside down one of those. And he kept going on about badges. <laughs> and some rooms would absolutely lap it up, like Eddie Izzard. I was going down to the supermarket on the back of a giant prawn. And you're, either you're willing to buy into this surreal madness or you just don't get it. So you get some people who are now famous comedians. I've seen them play to a room full of silence because people don't get it. So you can't really judge someone's humor unless you know what the, uh, the audience is. But yeah, often people are unintentionally funny. And I think everyone has the capacity for humour. From a medical perspective, are people delusional because everybody will put on their dating profile good sense of humour? So are, are we all potentially delusional? Go, no, I've got a really great sense of humour. Uh, how often have you ever run into anyone to say, who says, I re really haven't got a sense of humour? Uh, well, it depends how well you know someone, how honest they're being. If you're trying to impress, you'll say that, because obviously when you're dating, to say I've got no sense of humour at all is like saying I've got terrible halitosis and you know, <laughs> no penis. Not that that's important. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, that, I do worry about the way that we present ourselves and we buff and polish and try to make ourselves slimmer and fitter and funnier and more exciting than we really are. Um, but I, actually, if you think about the comedians you really like, they're often very self-effacive about their failings. I mean, they make humour out of saying, actually, I'm not perfect and I've got all these things going wrong with me. Uh, what would the world be like without humour? Well, I don't think we'd be human. So the thing is that humour exists uh, to dig us out of a hole and humans are the one species that knows long in advance that we're going to die. As my auntie Queenie used to say, she used to go, full up! The moment your sperm meets your egg, you join the queue for death. Uh, she was actually quite cheerful and she was basically saying, we're all in the queue for death. You can shuffle yourself around by eating your greens, wearing a seatbelt, having your vaccination, open the window. But ultimately, we're all queuing for death. So the essence is, what are we going to do while we're in the queue for death? Uh, and humour is the best way of dealing with your impending death. So it's, you know, humour can be a socially acceptable sublimation of aggression. You can deal with difficult issues, but a lot of humour is about either denying <laughs> that life is futile and empty and we're all going to die or filing ways of dealing with your own demise. So I, th I can't imagine hu humans are so evolved, they have to have humour because it's actually a really important coping mechanism for us. Uh, if we didn't have humour, we wouldn't be human. We'd be, uh, I don't know, newts or something like that, toads. Yeah, well, I know that you work with uh, Heads Up, the mental health charity. How important do you think that that humour is to good mental health? It's phenomenally important. Um, there are types of humour, as I said, there's humour that unites and humour that divides. Uh, so the kind of humour that unites, uh, it generally goes hand in hand with optimism and self-compassion. So those three things are pretty important. I mean, you can get people who are terribly worthy about their health and their self-compassion and their meditation and stuff, and that in itself makes me laugh. So you know, I, if somebody doesn't have a sense of humour, I intrinsically don't trust them. It's interesting, medicine is built on trust. If somebody really doesn't appear to find anything funny, I think that's a bit peculiar. I mean, obviously I want my pilot and my brain surgeon to take their job seriously, but I also like to think that they have a sense of humour. Uh, so yeah, there's good evidence that the optimistic mindset, it can also be quite dangerous. I mean, you could argue that Boris Johnson is an optimist and sometimes say in a pandemic, too much optimism might make you make rash and stupid decisions that harm lots of other people. And you know, on the day that we announced it was a bad idea to hold hands, Boris boasted, you'll be pleased to know I visited a hospital, you'll be pleased to know I shook everybody's hand. And a couple of weeks later, he's on intensive care. So too much humor and optimism, it needs to be targeted with sensible risk management. Um, and the mindset actually I use as a doctor and in most of my life is what I call intelligent kindness. So I'm faced with a dilemma and various courses of action. I think, is it A, intelligent and B, kind? If it's C, funny as well, then that's an extra bonus. But for me, um, the prism of intelligent kindness is how I view most problems. Uh, and I think if we had an intelligent kindness party in politics, IKIP, uh, I would call it, we'd, we'd latch up the UKIP vote. 
Um, I think, you know, everybody could unite behind intelligent kindness. What do you need to do in a pandemic? Well, stuff that's intelligent and stuff that's kind. Oh, oh gosh, that's the bit we're going to clip straight away. Would you because... vote, actually? Would you vote for IKIP if I stood? I yeah. was going to stand against Jacob Rees-Mogg is my local MP. And I thought I'd stand against Jacob. Jacob's terribly good fun. He's got 97 children. They're awfully funny. Uh, and I thought I'd stand for him against the Intelligent Kindness Party under the Martin Bell model. So I said to Labour and Lib Dems and Greens, look, I will stand for one term only as an independent. And if we club all our votes together, we can oust him, uh, just like Martin Bell, and then I'll be gone again. Uh, and they all said no. In fact, I was sacked by the BBC for saying that I would stand against him. And then when I, because they all said, oh, we'll support you. And when the, the parties came, they just couldn't collaborate. So Labour hated the Lib Dems and they, Lib Dems hated Labour and the Greens wanted to go it alone. Uh, so I didn't stand in the end, but I still have this idea of the Intelligent Kindness Party in the back of my mind that uh, it might make a, a repeat performance somewhere. Well, I 100% will have my vote and you'll also have me out on the doorstep canvassing for you. Excellent. Um, well, that make all the difference, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> the, the people of southwest London will be. Uh, yeah. It's not much good for you, really, is it? No, but the great thing is you can be a member of another party. You just have to embrace intelligent kindness. It's not difficult, is it? I mean, the, we know that cruelty, if you think about your kids, you want your kids to be happy, you're kind to them. Yes, you set them challenges and you don't make things too easy for them, but we know if you're really cruel to your kids from an early age, it often scars them for life. So those first few years, the first seven years, as we say, um, if you have too many adverse childhood experiences early on, you often never recover. So kind, supportive, gentle, chiding humor is good, but cruel humor to kids isn't good. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I, I think the Intelligence Kindness Party um, should take over, to be honest. With there you, you. are. I'm, there we I'm, I'm intrigued. And this is going off on a bit of a tangent. Why do you think people uh, won't cooperate? I mean, is it just has politics become that tribal, not just between Labour and the Tories, but also with all the parties that they can't see the common good? I, th I think it has. I mean, I, the thing is, I'm not, I've never been a member of a major political party. When I stood against William Aldergrave in 1992, who was the health secretary, I stood for the Struck Off and Die Junior Doctors Alliance, or SODJA. <laughs> and, and we hired an ice cream van to go around the streets of Bristol West shouting, what do we want? Willie out. When do we want it? Now. Willie, Willie, Willie. Out, out, out. Uh, we got 87 votes, but one of the reasons we only got 87 votes is that Labour went absolutely batshit crazy and said, you'll just split the left-wing vote and this is appalling. And so we stood on a mantra of don't vote for us, but just understand junior doctors. And it is intensely tribal. So, you know, it's there should be common ground. And if they want to win, what was interesting is when I said to the Labour and Lib Dems, would you rather collaborate and win or go your own way and lose? And they said, we'd rather go our own way and lose. We want to come second. So we're the next challenger next time round. So they weren't interested in collaboration. Uh, it'll depend on their leaders, I guess. I mean, poor Keir Starmer. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a sensible barrister who can string an argument together or whatever? But he appears, I'm not saying he does, but he appears to have no sense of humour at all and is therefore in the modern populist political context almost dead in the water. And I think that's a great shame because he could be a really good leader. He just needs to get involved in a... I don't know, pub punch up or something or do an open mic slot or something just to loosen up a bit, I think. Well, I actually agree. And uh, it's funny, isn't it, that, that you talked about trust and how we trust people. And I think that this, this is universally true, that if they seem like they have a sense of humour about themselves and a, a trustworthy, he seems to have a shield up most of the time. I, I hear from people we both know that he's actually um, very charming in, in, in private and funny. And yes, it's difficult, uh, isn't it? One on one, John Major, it could be delightful, but when The Guardian started painting him or spitting image in gray underpants, you know, it was really hard to recover from that. So it is interesting. So often on a one on one basis up close, they're far more charming. I meet quite a few politicians at private eye lunches and whatever party they're in, I'm generally pretty impressed with their intellect and, and level of dedication to the job. We've talked about how. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. 
And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You think the laughter has seeped out of the medical profession. Do you think that generally in other you go into other walks of life, is there enough laughter in the workplace? And is it something that you can bring back? It's difficult, isn't it? Because we try to be prescriptive about these things, you know, and there there is laughter therapy that you can prescribe and you can get a laughter therapist to go into your organization and professor chuckle with his juggling balls and whatever. <laughs> And some people find it funny and some people don't. I think there's a there's a worry about being offended now. I think, I mean, politics should be earnest because there's some serious stuff going on. You know, the pandemic may just be the foothills of climate change and vaccines are amazing, but we may just about be able to cure all known diseases at the point that the world becomes uninhabitable. So there's lots of serious stuff going on that isn't terribly funny. And I quite like earnest politicians but that earnestness and I have the right not to be offended and I'm going to know platform you and you've got to be careful what you say. I think people are frightened now. People get in a terrible muddle about gender and gender fluidity and which pronouns to use and when to outsource your sexuality to the pharmaceutical industry. There are all sorts of really difficult, complex areas. Um, and I think there's less humor now because people are worried of causing offense. So I think what happens is that you have your little group. So I have a little group of blokes called the Wednesday Elders and we go and we go on holiday together on walking holidays and we have our own little humor and we know we can say anything we like. I have that same bubble with my wife, Joe, who's a GP. We can use traditional medical humor within that bubble, uh, but I wouldn't put it on social media and I wouldn't use it in the workplace. So I think what it's doing is, is it's driving it underground into little pockets. And then occasionally someone in your bubble um, says, you've said something that's completely beyond the pale and I'm going to tweet it now uh, and you're dead in the water. So I was always saying, people say, well, do you seriously want to go into politics? Well, I would have never got anywhere near it if phones had been available when I was a junior doctor and when I was a medical student. So we used to do outrageous things as students. If someone was taking photos of that and tweeting that in real time, I'd have gone. So the people occasionally send me old style photos of things I did as a medical student saying, you know, just in case, you're thinking of standing in politics. Here's you doing the balloon dance in whatever, and here's you whatever. So I did a naked conga once around the streets of Amsterdam with my trumpet and a whole load of St. Thomas's medical students. And there are photos of that that would probably finish me off. Um, so I, I think it's that level of scrutiny, A, because of political correctness, and B, because people can tweet and record and take photos of anything in real time that people are probably a bit wary of it. But you say that, but then how does that explain the Boris Johnson phenomenon, which I'm going to use the word phenomenon, that he can seemingly have done anything, say anything, and it doesn't stick because he's a, 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 you know, perceived as a jolly good stick? Well, he's perceived as a jolly good stick, but he also is he's perceived as having certain human frailties that ring bells. I mean, the best humor ring bells with people and they say, oh yes, I get this gag. Boris Johnson rings bells with people because a lot of people have mucked up their personal life. You, Paul, have probably got seven or eight children. You've lost count of them scattered all over the country. Who knows? A lot of people make mistakes. They do heroic things like shake hands with hospital workers and then end up on intensive care with COVID. I think it's because he's fallible as well as being blokey and personable, having good sense of humor, that people sort of factor that in and forgive him. Uh, and it sort of changed political discourse. I mean, it, well, you know, I can I listened to Matt Ford's podcast that you did, and he made the point very interestingly that William Hague is one of the funniest public speakers you'll hear, uh, and was very funny at the dispatch box, but couldn't quite move into the superstellar orbit that that Boris moved into. But I met Boris. He's the only one I met him doing. Have I got news for you? Years ago, I was um, I think on Ian's team. I did two with Boris when he was in the chair. And this was the sort of making of him. So he's very clever. And it, 
his gestation is a long time in the making. So you think, did he just turn up at the right place at the right time? No, because his dad always said, you will be prime minister. He had this pressure from Eton and certain rivalries. He planned it from a long distance out. So all the, I'm going to be seen as a comedian, go on, have I got news for you, be fully endorsed as a comic persona was part of the plan. So he turned up at I Got You See You with all his entourage. Uh, and somebody said there was all sorts of things about the Bullingdon Club at the time. And David Cameron was refusing to say whether he'd snorted cocaine. And so I asked Boris, I said, have you ever snorted cocaine? He went, oh, I did it, I did it, I did it. I sneezed, I sneezed, it all went everywhere. And it could have been icing sugar. Who knows? I was a very silly Billy, 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 Billy. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a really interesting answer because you've sort of half diffused it in a, you know, I smoked a joint, but I didn't inhale sort of way. And you've done it through humor and you've taken out the, you know, did I have drugs as a young person card that people play. Uh, and I thought that's actually quite clever. And so... Interestingly, I think Have I Got News For You helped endorse him uh, in the nation's favour and probably did him, you know, they, they might regret it now, the producers, I don't know, but that probably really helped him as a vital stepping stone on his career to being seen as a bloke just like you and me. I know I know Paul very well because we've worked together the, the, mm. since the start of the comedy, um, you know, comedy store world and all that. But um, Paul and I think Ian as well thought that because they'd ruined his career properly and were pleased about it uh, because they they took the piss and made him look silly and were then stunned to realise that actually it had enhanced his reputation and it had done the exact opposite. But if you analyse it, so Matt analyses him very well in that he has got the skill set of a comedian. He plays to the room when he's in the commons, even when there's nobody there, he acts as if he's playing to the room so it looks competent. Jeremy Vine, have you heard Jeremy Vine's story? No. So Jeremy Vine dis, did some corporate gigs with Boris Johnson and one of them, uh, I think it was one of the big rooms, probably the Dorchester in London. So one of the big rooms who was playing thousands of people. Boris Johnson was late. He was late. He was late. He turned up with his cycle helmet on. He said he was cycling. He'd, you know, got behind, stuck behind a bus, slightly dodgy because somebody saw his car keys in his hand. But they thought, well, that's a bit peculiar. He didn't know who he was talking to. He kept getting the name wrong. He kept having to turn around to see the name of the institution he was doing the after dinner speech for. He told a very old gag and then forgot the punchline, had to ask the audience what the punchline was, stumbled through, brought the house down, 20 grand or whatever. And Jeremy Vine said, what an absolute bloody shambles that is. I can't believe he's just walked off with 20 grand for delivering that execrable mess. Uh, two months ago, he's doing something and it's the same setup. He's hosting and Boris Johnson is the guest speaker. And exactly the same thing happens almost word for word. He turns up at exactly the same time being late with his bicycle helmet, pretending he's late. He delivers exactly the same missteps, forgetting who the audience is, turning around at the same time, delivers the same joke, forgets the punchline, almost word perfect, as if he was a professional comedian. So that's probably his modus operandi, is to actually learn something well, and then wing it. And, and uh I, I mean, one of his quotes is that he loves chaos because everybody turns to him. So yeah. he creates chaos, which in your story is is what he's doing, essentially. And then it sort of he pulls it back. Yeah. So he's he's got a, it's an actual tactic. Gosh, that's it is. Really but you also need somebody who's got attention to detail if they're at the very top. Or you need people around him. So I mean, he's you know, he's good at doing that bit of being the show pony. Uh, but in terms of, you know, managing the complexity of a pandemic, uh, perhaps slightly less so. <laughs> yes, beautifully understated. <laughs> well, yes. I, I've written a book, I've, I've got a book, a, a, a series of my private eye columns are coming out in a book called Dr. Hammond's COVID Casebook. It's my first private eye book, so that's very nice, with an Ian Hislop quote on the front. But what's interesting about my coverage of the pandemic is I had to do it in real time. So I wrote a long column for private eye every fortnight, uh, so there's no room for hindsight. What I thought at the time, all my hits and misses are laid out in chronological order, which I think is where it'll be useful, particularly for a public inquiry. But it is interesting that I don't entirely blame Boris because nobody really knew what was going to happen at the start of it and how it was going to behave. And the, the scientific advice he was given was a bit like Fraser from Dad's Army. So Sage at the beginning were going, we're doomed because they discovered that this virus was, as well as being very infectious, could spread without symptoms. And they thought, gosh, this is just a takeoff like rocket fire, border controls, quarantine, nothing's gonna make any difference. It's gonna spread all over the world like wildfire and we're just gonna have to take it on the chin. Uh, and, and that was some of the advice that he was getting. So 
that may well turn out to be the right thing when we've looked at all the countries over the years and who fared best, we'll, we may all be stuck in the middle and not much will have made much difference apart from vaccines. Really? So you think that uh, there might be a case for Sweden may have been right? Well, you don't know until uh, everything is done later. So Sweden did well compared to the UK, but actually not very well compared to Finland and Norway, which was stricter. But the tree, you know, I'm half Australian. You can't get into Australia for love and the money now. And they, they had this fortress Australia approach um, but they've been slow on vaccines. So they've got zero tolerance to COVID and no vaccines or slow vaccines means they're going to be isolated for another few years, which will have a huge economic and cultural impact. So they may end up doing more harm than good. Uh, but it's you've got to get access to vaccines around the world. That's the issue is that we need to share the good fortune that we've had with as many other countries as we can. Well, yeah. And without that, we are all ultimately doomed, aren't we, until the world is vaccinated because... Well, I wouldn't people say are... doomed because most people won't be seriously harmed by it. That's the truth. It's a bit like COVID roulette. You never know how it's going to affect you. You know, you may have had it already, Paul, and not know. Some people get minimum symptoms. Some I... people, for reasons they don't understand, are completely wiped out. Well, I, I had it very early, and because I give blood, um, I spent nine months last year giving my blood plasma so they could That's use it for you. medical research and, and put it into people. So, yes, so I I was actually very fortunate, and I thought, because I'm so fortunate, I want to That's give good. something back. Well, that's been the real message of it is that, again, intelligent kindness, people, we wouldn't have the vaccines, not just brilliant scientists, if people hadn't volunteered for vaccine trials. We wouldn't have new drugs and therapies if people like you didn't volunteer. So that's the nice thing about it is that there's a certain collegiate, collective aspect of health. Instead of it just being very individual, this is what I do to stay fit. It's recognizing that our environment actually is the prime determinant of our health. So that, again, comes back to that gag about, you know, medical science will rid the world of all known diseases at precisely the time that the planet becomes uninhabitable. Uh, that may still happen. <laughs> too focused on our laboratories that we forget our environment and the environment is absolutely key to health and happiness. So if I asked you to write a business case for humour, what would you include in it? You'd have to tease apart the nature of health. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because when you write a business plan, there are certain ground rules that you try to adhere to. And the trouble is, if you start writing rules for humour, it suddenly becomes much less funny. People trying to analyse what makes you laugh. Uh, but I think focusing on humour that unites rather than divides, I think it's really important for any organisation to have space where people can have difficult conversations. And the thing I've noticed about the most successful organizations is that they collaborate rather than compete. And the idea of collaboration is that you have this whole team of individual talent. So you might have Mark on front desk who has a really good sense of humor and you might have somebody else back office with no sense of humor at all, but their voice and their input is equally valid. So I think there's a the business case for humor is actually saying a business case for uh, open discussion and collaboration where people in your organization feel free to challenge and they can challenge through humor or they can challenge seriously and they know that that challenge will be heard and they know that it will be acted on. So it's that sense where you're all working for the same aims and objectives. Uh, and it's difficult when you try and manufacture humor, go away on a funnier way day and make people jump through hoops and do things that often doesn't quite work. Uh, I just think spontaneous groups and gatherings um, often outdoors in a pandemic. That's a good idea because of the risk of being indoors. Yeah. Uh, and I've also found groups that walk together. So I've seen uh, medical groups where they walk together and you'll come up and you'll have a little chat with someone and a laugh and then you'll drop back and reflect and think and then you join up with somebody else. So walking and laughing and sharing. There are lots of companies now having meetings on the move, um, which I think are working all sorts of different ways at the moment. So lots of inventive ways of uh, bringing humour. But I, I suspect if you look at the bottom line, you say to people, is, it's like John Lewis's bottom line, is they want their place to be a great place to shop and a great place to work. Uh, and that's in essence what you want your, your uh, business to be. And if people are saying, I really look forward to coming to work, one of the reasons will be I've got great relationship with my colleagues and we laugh together and cry together and share stuff together. Uh, so I, th I see humour as a way of cementing good relationships within your organisation. Do you, do you think the only way to do that is top down, though, that if it, if it comes from the, no. the CEO or, or the culture, or do you think this can be bottom up as well? I do. I always say you need a B-Day revolution uh, from the bottom up, uh, but that means valuing and empowering the voices at the bottom. That's really important. When I travel around hospitals, I try and seek out, you know, the woman who's pushed around the League of Friends trolley for 30 years for Tuppence Hapney. Those are the people who glue it all together. 
uh, the, the chap who works in the canteen who helps all the junior doctors when they arrive on August the 1st because they don't know what they're doing and puts his arm around them and makes them laugh and supports them. Uh, you know, we mustn't forget the role of the people at the bottom of an organisation. So, yeah, as a, as a chief executive, you have to walk the floor and listen to people. Um, but you also need to permit a culture uh, where voices are heard at the bottom. And I think that's absolutely vital. So that is, in essence, top down, because if you don't permit yeah. that culture to happen, you need, both. You you need a shower. Listen. You need a shower and a B-day. You need both ends. <laughs> from the top bit from the bottom. And often, you know, they say often the best leaders are the ones who work their way up from the bottom because they know what it's like working at the B-day uh, as they get up and have a nice shower. So that's, you know, often knowing your organisation really helps, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very important. Um, I heard you uh, say that you prescribe five portions of fun a day um, that give meaning, purpose and hope. From a medical perspective, what are the benefits of fun? I say that it's sort of a screening test. I mean, I'm dealing with kids who often have post-viral fatigue or ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and they will describe it as like, I used to have a Duracell battery and now I've got a Poundland battery. So often kids who used to be full of energy and life and verve and vigor feel absolutely exhausted. They get extreme post-exertional malaise, which means they can do a bit of exercise and then be wiped out for several days afterwards. So I say to them, with what energy you've got left in your battery, as well as your five portions of fruit and veg, try and have a few portions of fun. I say up to five because five is often too many for them. And it's quite a good screening tool for mood and anxiety. So if nobody's got any fun at all in their life and nothing gives them pleasure, they're at high risk of depression also gives you a really good insight into who they are. So I often say to young boys, what are your five portions of fun? And they name me five computer games that involve destroying the world. And then I try to teach them that variety is the spice of life and that your five portions of fun all ought to be different. Um, and it's, it, it doesn't have to be riotous laughter, but people need a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. And sometimes it's the little things, it might be their cat, uh, it might be sketching, it might be listening to music, it might be strumming a guitar. Uh, particularly when life is tough, you need to have those little go-to things, uh, particularly when you've had a tough day, that just, you, lo you lose yourself in the moment. So people talk about mindfulness, and there's a whole industry out of mindfulness. Mindful just, mindfulness just means losing yourself in the beauty of the, the world around you, the surroundings around you, without having to judge it. And that can be in a favourite comedy. Uh, it can be stroking your cat or your dog. It can be sitting outdoors and looking at the flowers. Those sort of five moments where you're filling your mind with something that gives you joy uh, and can actually push. We know that if you're able to do that, it can push pain and fatigue uh, and other unpleasant symptoms to one side. So most unpleasant things you feel in your mind. So if you can fill up your mind uh, every now and then with sort of diversionary tactics, it can really improve things. Um, you'll know yeah. this as a psychologist, so I'm just sort of yeah. preaching to the I, I would. No, no, you are completely reaching to it, but we're actually preaching to the audience um, who want things to take away. And I think this is a really important thing to take away that that I would perhaps, and I wonder how you feel about this, take it even further and go, maybe even diarise actual fun and just go, you know, and I know that sounds a bit false, but it's just a reminder that actually I have to put it in my day. I mean, people's minds work in different ways. I mean, I um, am a big fan of dogs. So I had this do this whole thing in my shows about dogs, not drugs. And dogs are really good for your health because if you hug a dog, it reduces your blood pressure. Uh, they also reduce your cholesterol uh, by eating your food. Um, they look at you and keep looking at you until you take them out for a walk. Your husband doesn't look at you. Your doctor doesn't look at you. Your wife doesn't look at you. A dog looks at you and you have to take it out for a walk twice a day. So whether you want to, that's in your diary. It's in your diary, you've got green fields, you've got blue sky, every other dog walker you meet is a friend. Uh, so you've got an immediate social circle, dogs keep you supple as you bend over to pick up the poo. Uh, and if you're too depressed to put your pants on in the morning, they lick your testicles. You don't get that of the doctors, do you? Well, you might, it's private patients only, but generally the doctor won't lick your testicles, Prozac won't lick your testicles, a dog will do that for you twice a day if you let it. So stick that in your diary. Um, I get your point. So some people like diarising things and some people like improvising things, um, but my diary is my dogs. I get up and I walk the dogs and I know I'm gonna walk them in the evening. Uh, and I really love, sometimes I'll listen to something like the Humorology podcast, which I can strongly recommend. Sometimes I'll listen to the birds and the bees as I'm walking along. So uh, I, th I think absolutely diarising it is important, particularly if you have a busy job, you've got to force yourself to do it. 
I play football very badly on a Thursday night and it's a bit late for me and I don't sleep well afterwards because I'm too hot and sweaty and I always think, oh, I don't want to go. And every time I go, I absolutely love it. So I think you need to diarise and have things sort of say the Wednesday Elders is my uh, sensible drinking group. Uh, that's on a Wednesday. And so I have these little things built into my weekly routine that I think really help and I look forward to. From a psychological standpoint, I think that is really important that people understand this because I have similar things. I've got my running club and I used to play football as well with uh, uh, people. And it was but that's all about creating little communities, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right. Yes. Again, it comes back to relationships and the strength of relationships and feeling you belong. Belonging is a very important uh, part of the human nature. And also, well, I tell young kids particularly, I see kids with fatigue who are just getting back into life and they're bored and they're sitting in their room staring at their screen. And I always tell them to volunteer. Volunteer is brilliant because you, automatically you're submerging yourself in somebody else's shit rather than your own. And it gives you really good communication skills and a sense of worth. And I've seen so many kids resurrect their lives through volunteering in a care home or for the NHS or for a charity. Uh, it looks really good on the CV, but it teaches you to communicate with anyone and establish relationships with anyone. Uh, and I'm patron of a charity called Kissing It Better, set up by a wonderful uh, former St. Thomas's nurse. Uh, and they, when the pandemic wasn't on, they used to go into care homes and hospital wards and young people would sing for the residents. They'd do manicures, they'd sort their hair out, they'd entertain them. And because Duke of Edinburgh went a bit pear-shaped, uh, they got lots of young people to connect through iPads. They taught people in care homes who were isolated to use iPads and tell their stories. And the young people said it was amazing because these older people, they'd lived through TB, they'd been in sanatoriums, they'd been locked up during the war, they understood what it was all like and they got incredible stories back. So it was a real two-way sharing of stories that profoundly improved both people's health. So if in doubt, volunteer is my top tip. Yes, and we'll put links in the show notes so people yeah, yeah, do can know. I actually think it's, it's, it's really important. So, yes, reach out and connect. Absolutely. And I think it was you that said that, that loneliness is as bad as 15 cigarettes a day for your Lots health. Lots of people have said that. It's slightly dodgy. It's not a randomised control trial, but we know that social <laughs> isolation and loneliness is really bad for mental health. We don't really talk about mind and body anymore because they're inextricably linked. You know, if you have a uh, something going on in your mind, it will undoubtedly affect your body and vice versa. Uh, so yes, you need a sense of purpose and passion in your life and life shit happens in everyone's life. We know that. Uh, but if you have good relationships around you, you're more likely to recover. But they used to say in the BMA, British Medical Association used to have a sun up in their office and it said shit happens, but we can adjust the level. Uh, and then <laughs> somebody had written up or down. So sometimes we can make things worse. Um, but the thing that generally pulls you out of the shit uh, is relationships. Even better, not to fall in the river of shit in the first place. So that's um, wandering upstream and prevention is probably as important as pulling people out the river. Oh, well, beautifully put. Um, uh, poetically put as well. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we've now reached the part of the show, Phil, uh, which we like to call quickfire questions. Quickfire questions! Ooh. Okay, go on then. Who's the funniest professional person that you've ever worked with? Well, the funniest speaker I've heard is a chap called Miles Hinton Barber, uh, who became blind at a fairly young age, was fairly desperate about it, and then decided he was going to do ridiculous things like climb Everest, do a glider or whatever. And he tells, he tells his story. He says, it's not, you know, it's, you, we're all dealt a certain pack of cards. It's how you play them that matters. And he's unbelievably funny telling stories about how he's driving a glider or a plane. Or He's got a lovely picture of his mate who had, is an uh, army veteran who lost his limbs. And he's pushing him across the floor of the Dead Sea. So Miles is blind, his mate's in a wheelchair. They both have their aqualungs on. And with his white stick, he's pushing him across the floor of the Dead Sea. So he's someone who's now completely blind and does these most outrageous things. You know, he'll free fall parachute or whatever. So yeah, I met him at a business thing and I just loved him. His positivity in the face of adversity was absolutely inspiring. So if you haven't booked Miles, I would book him for your next conference. Just a reminder, his name, Miles Hinton Barber, was that Miles it? Hinton Barber, yes. I think his brother has it as well. It's a rare, he had a rare congenital eye condition that made him blind, but he, boy, he was a funny speaker. God, good, great, I'll look him up. What book makes you laugh? Uh, the one I've laughed at recently, I listen to lots of audiobooks at the moment, uh, and there's this Australian author called Steve Toltz, T-O-L-T-Z. 
and he's uh, wrote a book called Quicksand, which I think was his bane one. My fa it's called A Fraction of the Whole. And it's just a very, very funny, and it's narrated in Australian accent. I'm half Australian. It's, it's quite black, the humor, uh, and uh, very well-drawn characters and relationships and very, very Australian. So it's called A Fraction of the Whole. It was probably nominated for some award or something, but yeah, check out Steve Toltz uh, and particularly on audiobook if you want to hear a good Australian accent. Oh, perfect. I love a good audiobook. What film makes you laugh, Phil? Uh, this is pretty mainstream and only gets a few stars, but my wife and I, Joe, who's a GP, we watched together Blades of Glory that has Will Ferrell in. And it's Ferrell's a ridiculous funny. slapstick uh, about competitive skating and couples splitting up and two men having to skate together. And it's ridiculous slapstick humour, but it really made us roll with laughter. You know, when there's, you, you don't want to listen to clever satirical humour, you just want to laugh. It's the kind of humour I can't do. I just do words and people who can do funny slapstick humour are great. Uh, and so if you haven't checked out Blades of Glory, you'll be able to buy it in the pound shop or something and it will make you chuckle. It's just <laughs> stupid humour. Uh, the the favourite series by the way was Shit's Creek. So Shit's Creek got us through uh, lockdown. Because again, characters very well drawn, brilliant lines, and and uh, you know, a Hicksville American town where they accept anyone, whatever their attitude or sexuality. I thought it was a lovely context, but Shit's Creek really made us laugh as well. Great. Well, making a shift to the other side, what's not funny? Uh, any abuse of power. I think that the central ethical dilemma in life is the. Uh, compassionate and responsible use of power. So anybody who's using their power in a way that's abusive, uh, and there are millions of examples of that, but that's the, to me, that's what I, you know, I'm lucky I'm in a position of huge power as a doctor. You know, with a medical degree, I can stick my finger in your ass within a minute of meeting you and you'll be grateful. I mean, it's extraordinary <laughs> the amount of power. It's a bit like being the young conservatives, I guess. They give us a huge amount of power. Uh, so, and as a comedian, you have power with your microphone. You can really hurt and upset people. Uh, as a journalist, if I get a story wrong, I can destroy somebody's life. So it's actually realizing, recognizing the privilege uh, that you have and using your power compassionately and responsibly. So when I go after people, it's not because they've made honest mistakes. It's usually because they're not using their power in a compassionate or responsible way. What word makes you laugh, Phil? There are so many stupid Latin words. I was told at medical school I'd learn more new words in my first two years at medical school than a student of Russian. And we used to cloak all these ridiculous words up. And my favourite one of call is borborygmy, which is tummy rumbles. If you have your tummocks rumbling, and we call it borborygmy because we want to do something. It might be Greek, it might be Latin, I don't frankly care. But you know, who's got borborygmy? There's some borborygmy over in bay number four. It's a typical medical nonsense, isn't it? Uh, hiding yeah. behind a cloak of ridiculous language. But it, it's almost on a matter pig, isn't it? Borborygmy. 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 It is a real, I may have just made that up, may not even exist. You don't, you'll have to go yeah. and check. Oh, of course, we have full, full fact checks on good, this podcast. Good. Yeah, yeah. I'll check that, yeah. What sound makes you laugh? I do laugh at a loud fart. I'm Australian. <laughs> I can't deny oh, sorry. I, I love a fart. So my Uncle Ron used to do amazing farts and he always go better out than in. And then occasionally he had a dunny, an outdoor thunderbox, and he was obsessed with his poos. He'd eat lots of green veg. And when he did a really good poo, he called me over. He'd go, come on, come on over here, have a look at this, Philip. I've done a golden grogan. And a golden <laughs> grogan poo would coil twice around the pan and be pointed at both ends. And I'll never forget that. So to this day, I try and do a golden grogan. And whenever I fart, I laugh and go better out than in. <laughs> uh, my wife is wishing she married somebody else, but there you go. 28 years down, she's got nowhere to go now. <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. Um, would you rather, and I think I know the answer to this, uh, be considered clever or funny? Uh, kind funny, I think. I don't want to be cruel funny. I wouldn't want to be Jimmy Carr, although I think he can be occasionally very funny. Uh, so kind funny, I think, is important. But kind is the important one out of those two. I'd like to be thought of as a decent, kind person. Okay, that's, that's perfect. And finally, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? It's not my joke, but it's, it always makes me smile. A couple came to see me uh, as a doctor uh, in their 90s, and they'd been married for 70 years. Uh, lovely. And they said, they came to see me saying they were going to get a divorce. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. You're 92, 93, married for 70 years. Why do you want to get a divorce now? And they said, well, 
We've been thinking about it for a while, but we wanted to wait until the children were dead. <laughs> and it makes me laugh for all sorts of reasons. A, because you don't expect it, and B, <laughs> rather sadly it's happening now because we're also obese that many people are being outlived by their parents. And the fact that, that so many marriages hang together that aren't particularly happy because they don't want to upset the children. So you'd hang yeah. together <laughs> for 70 years of misery. Great, brilliant punchline that comes from nowhere. I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And it's yours to take with you to a desert island. That's what I think. Uh, it makes me smile. Oh, uh, Phil Hammond, you have been both intelligent, kind and funny. So we thank you so much for being on the Humorology podcast. Well, you did ask me if I'd look at your warty growth, if you'd just like to hang it up to the- Yeah, just if you could just have, have a quick- yeah. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly normal for this time of year. Just give it a light dusting with icing sugar and a bit of cream and you can pop that back in later. Use the end of your toothbrush just to pop it back up. Any questions? I am a proper doctor actually, you can check me out with the General Medical Council. If you do need to report me, then my number's up on the website. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good to see you. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.